Hello, and thank you so much for tuning into the Education Burrito, podcast that unwraps the everyday challenges in learning and teaching in education, exploring the ins and outs and highs and lows and different pedagogy approaches, enhancing student engagement amongst everything in education. My name is Q-Sum, and each episode I'll be joined by special guests as we unwrap the Education Burrito. I'm very excited today to be joined in this episode by someone who is a learning developer. They're very big on skills and learning development, especially in critical thinking, peer-based support and technology-enhanced learning. They are a trained past supervisor, an FIFO certified expert, a Microsoft Innovative Educator expert, a fellow of both the Higher Education Academy and of the Royal Geographical Society. With their role, they're also heavily involved with the Association of Learning Development in Higher Education and Association of Learning Technologists. With that in mind, they also received the prestigious Certified Leading Practitioner Award in 2018 from the Association of Learning Development in Higher Education in recognition of their work in learning technologies. Nowadays, you might find them soon to be a doctor in education and most recently celebrated their 11 years on Twitter. And today, I'm so pleased to chat with them on a topic that is very important in our educational space. Hope you can guess who is joining me in this episode today. It's Lee Fallon. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this. And, and what a great introduction as well. <laughs> Slightly blushing. Well, you shouldn't, but you are a brilliant person. So all the stuff that you've done is just brilliant. I'm an edgy geek. <laughs> so let us start us off then. What one interesting thing have you done recently? For me, my job's looked very different recently because of the pandemic that we're in. So um, I've spent a lot of my time supporting colleagues who work in the library reopen our building and make it available for students again. So I think the most interesting thing I've done is hand draw every single floor of our library in PowerPoint so that we can label every seat for booking. By hand? Yeah, I've, I've used the PowerPoint drawing tools. I wanted to use fancier program, but I thought, you know, I'll be the only person that can edit them. So I've done it all in PowerPoint. Yeah, we have a lot of seats. Before we recorded this, you were uh, showing me your a tour of your library. And I just love like, the chairs in your library. It's just so colourful. And then the chair you're sitting on right now is from the library. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I, I, I should say I haven't nicked it. I'm borrowing it from work while I'm working from home. <laughs> no worries. But wow. But wow. I can't believe you're drawing the whole library by hand. It's just another skill that you've learned right and I bet you know all the hiding places in the library absolutely well I mean to be fair I'm a geographer by trade so drawing maps we love it like as soon as somebody needed to do it I was like me 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 <laughs> no that's brilliant and I hope the plan that you've drawn will become very useful in the future and hopefully whoever's editing it in the future won't need to draw it by hand all over again it's uh, yeah it's a fun job though I absolutely loved it okay then so been following you on Twitter you know the fantastic work that you've been doing and aside from doing this doctorate that you're doing and congratulations on that you'll be a doctor one day <laughs> you're, you're kind of very much involved in this whole academic library and how how academic libraries are such an important space in the educational sector. Do you want to just tell us a bit about the work that you do with the library? I think it's really interesting when you talk about library space because to a lot of outsiders, people who don't use those spaces, you, you often hear people thinking, well, why do people still go to a library? We've all got computers, there's the internet, right? And that there's a, a, a sizable literature that predicted the demise of libraries. But as you can see in, in nearly every university, this hasn't happened and, and libraries are even more popular. More people are coming through our entry gates 
and it really gets me thinking well, you know why what do people think about libraries and, and one of the things that I've toyed with a lot if you look at, at the etymology of library it basically means book building but they're no longer buildings of books they're very different spaces and, and that's really what I've been exploring over the last five years with my research if a library isn't a book building what is it and if it didn't die why didn't it die so those are some of the questions that I've been toying with in my research no, that's brilliant. And it's a great concept that you've just kind of brought up there is, is building a library, right? Or rather build, using the books to build knowledge and building a space for everyone, not just for students, but staff to use as well. But how did you first got involved with this research? Yeah, my research was a really interesting journey. I think there's a couple of points that, that really kicked it off for me. And one was a conversation from some students. I was walking along, we've got this giant white path on Hull campus it's beautiful it goes right through the center of our campus and we call it the great white way and it goes from Cottingham Road all the way through campus and passes the library so I was walking down the great white way one day and I overheard some students being introduced to the library and it was one of our student ambassadors and they were telling these prospective students about the library and they said and the words have stuck with me to this day this is the Brimmore Jones Library. It's a great place to meet friends, grab a coffee or chill between lectures. And, and that really resonated with me because they didn't say it's a great place to access resources. It wasn't they spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on materials for you to use. It wasn't it's got Wi-Fi, wall-to-wall, new study spaces. It wasn't they've just spent nearly £30 million on this building and it's a great place for you to work. And at first I was kind of horrified. I was like, is that, is that really what? And then actually I realised this is not a bad thing, right? You know, the library is something very different. It's becoming a different kind of space. I realised I didn't know as much about the building that I worked in. And I felt that I needed to research that. I have a very interesting relationship with this particular library because I started my career in student unions. Anybody who wants a career in higher education, I think you cannot have a better place to start your career than with a student union because student unions are about putting students first, engaging them and helping them build their experience. And it, it gives you such a, a great mindset when you're working with students because it's about them and it's about their experience. And I think that's why I ended up becoming a learning developer. As much as learning development works with the institution, it sometimes challenges it. Learning's messy and we're advocating for students as much as we're helping them advocate for themselves. But when I worked for the student unions, um, partially responsible for the campaign that led to the redevelopment of the library. So I've been quite at the start of the journey of the Bryn Mawr Jones Library redevelopment and the university did heavily invest in this particular space so I was I was out there on the ground campaigning to see this investment and then helping the university realize that and then many years later being able to research and say okay what did we build what is this space and what what do people think of it so that was the first thing for me that one conversation and the second if you just go to google image search and you type in library you'll see three things. You'll either see pictures of books, pictures of bookshelves, or you'll see pictures of buildings that are libraries. And actually they're much more than that. 
and I think that's one of the messy things that needed to be uh, investigated a little bit more. No, that's brilliant. And I really like the way how you mentioned a student was walking past on a campus tour and they mentioned this is the library. Yeah. I remember when I was at university, oh, I, I am still at university. <laughs> when I go to the library or show students around, yes, the library is full of amazing places and you know, a silent area, the cu- oh, those comfy chairs in the corners, those big cushions on the floor. Oh, I miss the library actually. But it's more than just the books and the resources, but it's the librarians. The librarians are the hearts of everything. Without librarians in the library, anyone can go to the library, but it's all that interaction of actually speaking with librarians and they direct you say oh have a look at this resource to get information or this book or they will tell you things that you don't necessarily know from the internet so I think it's just library is not just full of books but also the librarians and I think the librarians are the kind of they need a really big shout out as well they help you through all those years not just in your first day at university but it's like writing those references using those softwares just of library staff are amazing like you want to get anywhere use library staff because I, I think particularly in our campus our library during normal times at least is it has the longest opening hours it's staffed the longest people get lost to go to the library they don't know who to go to they go to the library and we point people in the right direction and actually that's one of the big things that came out of my research it's that the library staff are important I've, I've been this very interesting uh, journey because when I did my research I engaged not just students but library staff academics and volunteers because I think sometimes research about academic libraries focuses too much on students while students are at the heart of everything that we do the library staff are such an important part of that as well and they are experts in students and what they need and how the library works and I think listening to their voice can really help us understand libraries more I think one other thing about academic libraries in particular A lot of university services are very student focused or staff focused and the library as a service is probably one of the few areas that offers both staff and students a service. It varies from campus to campus. Some universities do have distinct staff spaces and distinct student spaces but for us at Hull the Bryn Mawr Jones Library not only is it the heart of campus but we're there for staff and we're there for students. So a lot of the time we we end up calling our users customers because that's just better reflective of both staff, students and members of the public and it can get too long a list if you start listing them. Yeah it's fantastic that you've mentioned that because you are trying to be inclusive. The library is not only for one certain group of people to use, it's inclusive, it's diverse and when you go to the library, you'll see all different types of people from different backgrounds. They're all mixed together. And no matter what background and what culture, they all kind of talk. And the library, I think, is a way for people to come together, to learn together, not individually, but together, and also ask people for help. And I'm sure people in the library are always really, really helpful, no matter whether or not it's students or staff as well. I think the idea of safe space is so important. Mm, definitely. So you've mentioned your research quite a bit actually what other key results did you find in terms of this academic library space how has it been beneficial to to the community so for me I think the key output of my research is a new way of defining the academic library so rather than it being the book building I've come up with these five different spaces of the academic library so the first is what I've called the discovery space So instead of this being information or knowledge, which puts the focus on those storing and curating collections, I've called it discovery space because the really important thing about all of the stuff we hold is making it available for people to use. 
And I think that really reflects the modern academic library. If we went to ancient libraries, it was about hoarding information and keeping it safe. Um, now it's about making information usable for people. And, and I guess information these days is less fragile. You know, you can always print another book, order a second copy. Um, so it doesn't apply to archival material, but information's easier to come by and easier to replace. So you don't have to chain books to a desk anymore. So that's the, the big first space. The second one is physical space, and that seems really obvious, but I think for people who aren't in a library or using a library, you sometimes forget the importance of library space. And I think this is really important for academics because sometimes when you're focused on research and use of journals, you forget what it's like to be a student that actually does need a space to work and you've not got an office. You've not got all of these skills, so you need people to support them with you. And the library is a physical space to go to, at least at this point, is still important. That isn't to, to acknowledge that remote services don't happen. It's just we're still in a phase where the physical library is important. The third space for me is the imagined space. And this is messy, but this recognises that each student and each person sees the library in a different way. Some people will love it. Some people will hate it. Some people will have imaginaries from reading Harry Potter and think of it as magical. Others might see it as an eerie or a spooky space. We all see it slightly different, but we all take these imaginaries with us. And that for us, the library is a challenge because... Quite often people do think of us as just a building full of books and we are far, far more than that. We are full of help and support and study spaces, very different to what a lot of people think about. And I think that falling into the imagined space is almost that of community. You know, and I say imagined community, this is the geographer in me. It can't be a real community because all of those students don't know each other, but they've, they've got this commonality. They're all a member of this institution. They're all working on their own academic efforts and that creates some kind of commonality and community. The fourth space is social space. So that recognises that the library is built of people doing things and interacting within it. There are rhythms within this. So a single room in a library can be almost a very different space at different times of the day. So for my research, I was sat up there at midnight watching what happened and also looking at lunch to see how the space evolved throughout the day. People and their interactions really do make a space and they make it very different. And then for me, the final space is that of engagement space. And this is shamefully the biggest surprise for me but it's engagement space and that's staff engaging with students and students engaging with staff and also students engaging with each other to help and it's that idea of help support skills development assistance signposting directions and all of those kind of things that a library does so to recap five spaces we've got discovery we've got physical imagined social and engagement no Brit, i can't imagine that for the social space you actually camped out in the library <laughs> for my pilot study i was I, I did propose doing 24 hours in the library and i was going to spend 24 hours sat there and my supervisor was a bit like mm, have you thought what your mental state is going to be like at you know hour 23 um, you might not get anything useful out of that so i ended up doing sweeps essentially i identified five different areas of the library i wanted to study and I visited each of those in the morning, over lunchtime, in the afternoon, and then in the evening. And I did that three times a year. So induction period, like the November study time, and then in the exam period around uh, January. As a researcher, you, if you actually been in the library and looking and observing people, you get that 
full insight, right? Because you're not going around with a clipboard, but you are immersing yourself with other students in the library as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I was quite unique in my research in that while I work in a library, I'm not a librarian. So it gave me this kind of insider outsider perspective. I was kind of like in the library enough to be able to do the research, but not embedded in it so much that I couldn't see things at times. Or at least that's the that's where I aimed to be in the research. No, that's brilliant. So we also know that you are a learner developer. How do you use your learning development hat that you wear all the time with the research that you do with the academic library? How do you merge them together to engage students or staff in your institution? That is a great question. It, to start off with, I saw them as very separate things almost. I'd self-funded my research and I was thinking, you know, what do I want to investigate? These things had happened that triggered it. And and me as a geographer, I was thinking I want to investigate a space. Almost intentionally not done research on learning development. And while there's probably more of a gap in the literature there, I wanted something that was separate from work so that I had a little bit of a delineation. It didn't feel like it was all-consuming, researching and working and living and studying in the same space. But actually, as time has evolved, those two things are smushing together a lot more. So we had a a restructure just before Christmas and and my role changed from skills advisor to academic and library specialist. And while I tend to do the same things in that job, I've also had a few opportunities at work, such as leading on our customer engagement group. Once again, we're not buying into neoliberalism and the marketization of higher education. It's just customers because we've got members of the public, students, academics and, and so on. And I think it's at these points that I'm seeing these things kind of merge together more. For me, one of the key things about learning development is it's identifying the gap between what students know and what they need to know and helping them build that bridge and helping them develop self-efficacy and help them become independent learners. And and that's not because we don't want to help people, but we want them to become self-sufficient and help themselves. And I'm trying to take that model into the library as well. So yes, we've got staff. Yes, we will help people. At times, you know, we will hold their hand and take them to where they need to be. But at some point we need to let go and they need to go there themselves. So I think taking that learning development view really helps with that increasingly there's a lot of overlap between learning development and librarianship particularly around information skills and information skills support so our team do both academic library support and skills slash learning development support and we've got members of staff and we're training each other up so that we can overlap so i've got librarians who do learning development stuff and i will sometimes do library stuff no, that's brilliant. So you're kind of involved in this whole hashtag DigiTeach whole as well. Could you just briefly give us an overview or flavour of what this is for? Yeah, absolutely. It started as DigiResHull, so the digital researcher. It started when JISC started doing a lot of work around digital capability. I absolutely love all of the research and the publications they've done in this area. We really have adopted their model of digital capabilities and that's been really helpful for us. And very early on, we audited everything we had against that framework. And where we had resources, great. Where we didn't, we created them. And I feel we had a really good support system for students. Over time, we realised there was a big gap for research. And that's where we ended up developing DigiRes Hull. And what we did with this is we took the concepts of a MOOC. So it's open 
but only to people who work at or study at Hull. It's a course, maybe small M, it's not really massive. The concepts of self-paced content, social interaction, light touch assessment that really helped shape this course. So we did a, a Monday to Friday thing. Each day it's a different thing. Within that topic, there'd be simple things for them to do. So, for example, on Monday, we'd introduce Twitter as a networking tool and a communication tool for researchers. And the thing for them to do was to create a Twitter account if they didn't already. And if they did, share it with everybody else. And then it ramps up through the week. So Tuesday, we look at social media more. Generally, I've got a video introducing academia.edu, researchgate.net, LinkedIn, Humanities Commons, Figshare and... Uh, grow kudos and then the thing for them to do that day after they've watched the video so that's the watch this the do this is go away choose one of these create an account and then come back and reflect on it so to get from one day to the other they've not only got to click on the pages but they have to contribute in the forum and then if they they do that they get a badge for the day and it lets them progress to the next one so this worked so well for us we've had three cohorts we've had about 500 people sign up about 350 ended up doing something and we've had a good 200 get through to completion and we basically hit a model that really worked and as soon as we ended up in lockdown and we had to support our academic staff with teaching online because many of them hadn't quite used our virtual learning environment in that way it was our teaching enhancement academy they thought we can use this model so they took the digi res hull and they created digi teach hull and I was involved in that course team working alongside three of my colleagues who were essentially academic developers. And I think we came up with a really good product and we've had loads of staff go through it, introduce them to loads of tools that we've got available. And it's, it's worked really well. And we had very senior management buy-in from the university. So they were saying, you know, academics, if you can, you should really do this. And I think we're on our fourth cohort of that. And we've also created a self-paced version of it for people who need to work a little bit more flexibly. No, that's brilliant. And I think not just for your institution, I'm sure other institutions, they all have the same challenge to engage academics outside of you know, teaching face to face in person. And I think this is a great model and this is a great concept for other people to kind of learn. I'm just wondering, is this model open for other people to use say, outside of your institution? Um, we've not we've not open sourced the content of the course, but that model really works very well. I've done a number of presentations on that, and I'd encourage anybody who wants to engage postgraduates or staff. It's a really great way to do it. Only do Monday to Friday. We did do Saturday Sunday the first run, which was great for the students, but terrible in hindsight because when we opened it to staff, we realised. We were expecting people to do stuff on a weekend and that did not go well. And while that works great for students, for staff, it was it was very red area. Like you were expecting me to work on a weekend. What are you doing? So the power of hindsight. Flexible, yes, but not designed activities on a weekend. We aim for about an hour content. So anyone who's looking to do replicate that, you want people to have about an, an hour a day of stuff to do. And you've got an introduction page saying what the thing is that you're looking at. And then anything we do, we badge it with either read this, do this, try this. So very, very short snippets for them to do. And because there is an amazing range of expertise on Twitter, yourself included, 
we encouraged a, a single question every single day and we very sneakily added certain people in to see if we could get some expertise throughout the institution and we did get some really good responses on some of those questions as well love it i love how you just sneakily copy people in (laughs) just to generate some engagement and i think it's all about sharing the knowledge not just within one institution but across different institutions so you can then share practice of adopting the model to fit their need. And I think we need to see a lot more of that because sometimes in higher education, the fact that it's a competitive market now, we lose that kind of community we have in higher education because we're now all competitors, we're now all businesses. And, and I think sometimes we need to step back and, and just remember some of the bigger goals of what a higher education is about. So we've mentioned a lot about benefits in terms of working with the library and you know, learning developers in the institution. But what are the risks or the challenges you found so far in terms of trying to work with everyone in making the library a better place or actually making the library the place to go to? I guess one of the issues you can get is you water your expertise down a little bit. So I wear multiple hats. Sometimes I'm a learning developer. Sometimes I'm leading on customer engagement. Sometimes I'm dabbling with library stuff. And while I'm quite competent with library stuff, I'm not a trained academic. Likewise, we've got people who are librarians and they are not trained academic, trained librarian. Librarians dabbling with learning development. So we're playing in each other's territory. I don't think that is a bad thing because it means we're more multi-skilled and these skills overlap all the time students don't they don't sit there and recognize oh i need to go speak to somebody with technology about this i need to speak to somebody in the library about this i need to speak to somebody in learning development about this it all blends together so it does have a great benefit for students i think you sometimes risk watering the expertise down and one thing that we've done in our institution to help with that our new role is academic library specialist and then each one of us will take a specialism on and we'll champion that it'll be our responsibility to be up to date in the literature in that area and visit conferences and network with people about that so i think mine will be something to do with digital literacy digital technology digital capability there'll be another colleague who focuses on learning development there'll be somebody focused on information literacy someone focused on teaching and learning so we're still trying to maintain those areas of expertise. At Hull, we were very lucky because we are all physically situated in the library. We developed our team that way, but there is a longer journey behind that. So at the University of Hull, we used to separately have a study advice service and separately librarians and separately an IT training team. And we've basically smushed them together to form the skills team. So our team is the equivalent of a writing centre, a learning development centre, library support, and at times IT and research support, depending on the issue. So it, it's great for a one-stop shop, but you do end up doing a lot of things. It's it's hard to keep on top of it. So people who are listening to this podcast might be feeling not very confident in terms of approaching libraries or not knowing how to work with library. What would be, say, your least top tips to get it started? Speak to your library. It's one of the biggest areas I think all libraries struggle with. It's getting that staff engagement and working with staff. And we want to do that. We want to be buying the right materials for you. 
if your library runs learning development, we want to be helping support your students in the right way. And each library does it slightly differently. A lot of them do have academic liaison librarians or subject librarians. Speak to them, use them. They will come in, they will help you, they will teach with you. You know, your librarian is your best friend. So never, ever be worried. You know, librarians are not spooky. They're not officious. They don't shush you. They don't wear glasses and look over them at you. Um, librarians are generally so incredibly friendly so please speak to your librarian speak to your learning developers and we want to work with you so we're on the same team quite often you'll find we have a different relationship with students so sometimes we can point out things that you might have missed and, and that works vice versa as well best resources that i think i've produced was actually co-written with a colleague so shout out to alison in history you know she came over and she said you know you don't have this resource and she was right, we didn't. And I said, sit down and write it with me. And we did. We spent half a day. Um, and I'm really happy with that particular resource as well. So I think there's a lot of benefits from, from collaboration. So my one top tip, speak to your library and love your librarians. They're awesome people. I bet you have a massive badge that you always wear, right? on campus or not say i'm a librarian or speak to your librarian when we opened our new library after the redevelopment we we moved to roving support so previously we had one big desk and students went there we didn't want that anymore we've got an eight-story building and we wanted our staff to be more visible so we have like neon yellow lanyards everybody wears one so whether you are an associate director or somebody working in customer services you wear that lanyard and students can ask you for help. So it's amazing sometimes, you know, everybody buys into this. You may even have, you know, management in the library walking along and a student can say, this printer doesn't have any paper in and they will be able to go in and, and get that. And all of us really buy into that. And we're, we're trying to remove silos from our organisation. We're in a really good position with that. And we've done loads of campaigns around it. So we had a play on Star Wars, you know, help me, Olam, the yarded one, you're my only hope. <laughs> We've had a load of fun with that. I bet you dress up as a Yoda, right? Did you dress up as a Yoda for that? <laughs> I, I don't, although you should see me at Christmas. Um, I, I, have, <laughs> I have a giant jumper with bells on it. That's about as far as I get with dressing up. Um, the only thing is, if, if a student needs help in our reading room, I have to tiptoe in so I don't jingle. <laughs> or you can dress up as a Darth Vader. Well, that could be quite fun, couldn't it? Like, here is your book. <laughs> I don't know. This would be creepy if there's no lights in a dark room. Those, all those rooms, that's automatic. You have to go in and wave your house. Before we went to 24-hour opening, it was amazing because I'd sometimes work late. And all of our, there's no light switches in the building. They're all automated. So we've got this giant empty first floor. And as you stepped out onto it, all of the lights would come on away from you. And it was ever so slightly horror movie-esque. You have the opportunity when you go back. Thanks to COVID-19, things have been very, very, very different for us. But I believe we were one of the first libraries to reopen our doors. So we've been open, um, we've been using book a seat. So people can't walk in anymore. They need to book in advance. But we've, we've had people running back. Um, we initially made 100 seats available and they were fully booked. I think for me, it's the thing that gave me so much reassurance because as I started at the beginning, this idea of the library dying and everything being digital and people not needing these spaces, I had this massive crisis when we went into lockdown because I was writing a thesis. I was about to hand it in in two weeks and I was literally writing pages positing this dystopian future where we close libraries. 
And because of the pandemic, because of the lockdown, and because it was the right thing to do, every library, public and academic, closed. I was in quite a dark place. I was like, this terrible future that I wrote of has come true. And then I thought, maybe this is all in my head. Maybe people won't care. Maybe people won't notice. It's been so heartwarming on Twitter to see globally people missing their libraries. Also recognising it's, it's been the right thing for us to be closed to, to help support the, the F in this pandemic. But it was also heartwarming when it was safe for us to do so and reopen and see people coming back in and saying that they'd missed us. I think, oh, warm fuzzy feelings. Mm. So if we look to the future then, how do you think your work in terms of the whole concept of the academic library as a learning space will evolve? It's definitely going to evolve. I'm just not quite sure how. I think it's an interesting time for libraries because we're seeing alternative spaces pop up. Sometimes a library isn't called a library. There's the Information Commons at University of Sheffield, which is a great example. Lovely building. It's pretty much a library. It's got study spaces in it. It's got some books and shelves. Not as many as a traditional library, but it's very library-esque and it's called Information Commons. And there's this idea of the commons coming up a lot more. Um, University of Bath Spa have a space called the Commons as well. No books in it. Study spaces. Uh, there are even librarians in it, so you can go and ask them for help and support, but there isn't a single paper resource in there. So we're starting to see these alternative spaces pop up. And for us, when we redeveloped our library, we removed all of the books and shelves from the ground floor, no collection. There hadn't really been much there. It was mainly just reference. Our first floor largely cleared out as well. All seating, computer spaces, social study spaces, um, and then the tower block, so it's an eight-floored building, ground through to floor seven. We removed one row of stacks and put sofas and comfy seating in each of them. So libraries are evolving. And increasingly, one of the big things is where can we hide the book stock? And how can we get more seats, more computers, more desks, more social spaces? And I think we might continue to see libraries without books. It's not that I care about the books, I care about the space. And when you get rid of shelves, you've got so much more space to do things with. I think the only thing we risk losing is browsing and serendipity. And I think a lot of people do miss that when you're requesting books. A lot of universities have off-site or out-of-library storage. In our library, we extensively have a lot of our collection in the basement now, and we can get it for you very, very quickly. But you can't exactly browse the shelves as you would typically. I think we've got a lot of challenges. The technology is evolving. We're seeing a lot of maker spaces pop up in libraries with 3D printers, sewing machines, boxes of Lego, cameras. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovative things. And I quite like, as we've seen with some public libraries, they've been called idea factories. So I think we might see a new evolution of what a library is. And that's why in my model, I was very keen to not just have knowledge or books or information, but to have discovery, because I think that word means so much more. No, that's brilliant. I think we can spend a whole day, you know, talking about the library I definitely miss the library and I I just love I love the smell of the books coming off the shelf it's that smell of the books and then running the pages through my fingers but anyhow we can all dream that and uh I just need to maybe go and grab a book after this <laughs> just to <laughs> have that feeling again so if we then move on to this quick short firing round for our listeners to get to know you a bit more 
we'll see how it goes. So my tip to you is don't think too hard of the questions. I'm going to have to try very hard for this because I'm good at overthinking. Uh, but I, I will try. I'm going to try and be spontaneous. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. Three words to describe yourself as an educator. Technological geographer geek. If you are to pick one learning or teaching tool, what would it be? OneNote. Microsoft OneNote. But just out of curiosity, why? I use it as my second brain, essentially. Like, every note that I've got being put into there, I think if you ask me that question in a year, I'll probably be saying Microsoft Teams because it's going to help us connect so much better. What do you do to recharge yourself after a long, stressful day at work? Video games. Just rediscovered them after handing my thesis in and having my Viva. Got one more amendment to work on. I particularly love city skylines, building cities. I would have thought you would want to build a library, you know, with your background. I'm giving books a rest for a little bit. I've, I love audiobooks as well. Okay, so other than your phone or a book, what would be the one best thing to carry around to show colleagues or students in corridors? Ooh, I guess it's a bit of a cheat if I say my iPad. <laughs> no, that's fine. What are your favourite hashtags? Oh, hashtag LTHE chat. My number one. And I should say I've missed it greatly. I'm really looking forward to getting back into that. I just reached that point where my thesis needed to be in and I was like, I can't even afford this hour. But I'm past that and I'm really looking forward to engaging with that. And I think second up, a conference hashtag, so hashtag ALTC for the Association of Learning Technology, ALTCOM for the Association of Learning Development, any kind of thing, uh, Lila Cabron as well. It's just so great to see what, what's happening at that moment and all of the latest things going on. Fantastic. Tea or coffee? Oh, coffee. Without a shadow of a doubt, coffee, 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 coffee. <laughs> I, I have a, on my lanyard, staff collect loads of badges to personalise them. And I've got one that says caffeine addict. And my husband is an assistant manager for Costa Coffee. So it's the most appropriate thing ever that I, I am married to somebody working in the industry. If you're a book, what would your book title be? Here and Back Again, A Learning Developer's Tale by Lee Fallon. <laughs> yeah, that's a fantastic title. I look forward to reading that book. <laughs> All right. Favourite music genre? Oh, I'm quite eclectic, but I'm probably a massive sucker for like the top 40 pop, R&B, that kind of thing. Although I'm starting to listen to it a little bit more and thinking, Ugh. I'm too old. Never too old, come on. <laughs> invisibility or super strengths? Oh, invisibility. Invisibility. I'd probably do something really sad like sneak into the British Library on a night and uh, read books or, or investigate their strong rooms. I'd, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be a super criminal or anything, but invisibility would be awesome. Who are your learning and teaching hero? Oh, Helen Webster. I absolutely love Helen Webster. She is an amazing learning developer based at the University of Newcastle. Her blog is just visionary. Every time I read it, I think, yes, yes, exactly this, yes, this is amazing. And she's championing some amazing things to do with both learning development as a discipline, but also some of the real questions around higher education and inclusion induction I, I, I wholeheartedly recommend 
I'm, I'm, I'm fangirling too much now. Um, <laughs> never too much, never too much. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be Helen Webster. Oh, does she know? I hope so. I hope so. Well, she will now. She will now. <laughs> she definitely, definitely will now. Okay, and finally, because our podcast is called The Education Burrito, what's your favourite burrito feeling? Oh, it would have to be like spicy ground beef with sour cream in it. Absolutely. Maybe a tiny little bit of guac as well, but something spicy. That's awesome. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this episode. And if our listeners want to find out about what you do, Lee, how can they do so? Uh, You can catch me on Twitter, so at Lee Fallon. I also have a website which I need to desperately start blogging on again, and that's leefallon.co.uk or .com. Oh, that's brilliant. And again, a big, massive thank you to you, Lee Fallon, for sharing with us the concept of the library in our educational space. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and tuning into the Education Burrito. Make sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you're listening on and be sure to like it and share it on social media, tagging us at the hashtag the Education Burrito. If you have enjoyed our chat today and fancy coming onto the show, no matter as a student or member of staff, do drop us a message as we unwrap learning and teaching in the Education Burrito.